Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to Quarantine Conversations. This is your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is kind of a noob to the YouTube sphere. His name is Artie Morty, at least that's what he would have us believe. And he's been speaking, quite recently he started speaking about the difference between gay rights and trans rights, and uh, kind of criticizing the gender identity ideology that has swept the nation, and not only the nation, but specifically the LGBT community. And uh, we explore why he got into this, what he has to say about this, and I would highly recommend his channel. The link is right down there in the description, and I'll plug it in here if you have a device that allows you to let me plug things into the actual video. Anyways, that all said, here's Artie Morty. How's it going? Good. As good as it can be, you know, given the situation. Oh, wow. Is that like a mega worm? Is that some sort of homeopathic treatment that you're on right now? <laughs> no, God, no. It just, uh, it's just booze, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fine. Um, yeah, it's it's weird. I, I guess we get to have a lot of time to have these quarantine conversations, what I'm thinking of them as. Exactly. Yeah. How's things where you are? You're in Washington State somewhere, right? Yeah, somewhere in Washington State. I, I'm, I'm good at um, quarantining. I'm, I'm great at lockdown. I'm so far so good. You know, taking little walks and, uh, you know, keeping myself, trying to keep myself busy. I think I'm getting into a groove now, finally. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. I've always had a hard time staying home. I'm one of these people who hates to be at home by myself. I'm always going out. So it's been an adjustment. <laughs> That's for sure. Are you in okay. a densely packed um, area? Very much so. I'm in the dead center of a very large, major metropolitan city, surrounded by 60-story skyscrapers, basically. So, mm. yeah, right in the middle of it. Nice. Um, do you guys have like pneumatic tubes, like ersatz uh, system of delivery that you can reboot? Oh, I wish we could bring that back. Oh my God. One of my old jobs was in a very old building that had those tubes everywhere. Loved it. Hmm. Oh, that'd be cool. <laughs> we'll see all kinds of things come back. Old technologies, right? Yeah. We'll see what's, uh, what's necessary. I don't know. It's the whole brave new adventure we're on now. Yeah. So Here time. Keep kill. Keep chill. Carry I've watched on. Contagion like forty times. <laughs> You've watched what? That movie Contagion like forty times. It's a good movie. So good. Yeah. Are you um are you a literary person? Are you in uh, what kind of general domain do you work in? Mm, all the domains. <laughs> oh really? Think, okay, cool. Is that what you mean? Like what is my art form of choice? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm more of a music guy. Okay. Yeah. But I read. I'm literary. Yeah. What prompted you to start these videos? Well, this has been a subject that's been interesting to me for a couple of years now, I guess. 
I mean, I've always been interested in women's rights. I was raised by like, a very outspoken feminist, single mother. And I've always been really fascinated by sort of critical thinking and skepticism and that kind of thing. Um, I've always been fascinated by cults. I'm totally obsessed with Scientology. It's just so fascinating to study how people can get sucked into these strange worldviews. And, you know, just not, it's been so fascinating to see, trying to understand how these people think. Um, and then this came along, and it's like, I'm gay, I'm very interested in women's rights, I'm very interested in the cult mindset and critical thinking, and it's just like, it ticks all my boxes. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, absolutely, uh, totally riveted by what, what's been going on. Yeah, yeah, you've done, like, you hit the ground running. The, the three videos, I can only recall three videos that you have up, but they're excellent videos. You're just like... Thanks a lot. That's high grade coming from you. Thank you very much. Going right at it. Did you <laughs> see in the LGBT community prior to the infiltration of the gender identity um, ideology, did you see, like, uh, kind of the same dynamics in the activism circles, or is this totally uh, novel? Mm, there were always uh, it was never perfect in the LGBT activist community uh, but it's no, nothing like this things have changed completely I've been very much involved in the gay community in the gay scene uh, all my life mm -hmm. uh, I, you know I worked at a trans bar way back in the 90s um, so I've really been around all this stuff uh, and I, I've never seen anything like it things have just changed so dramatically and not just really with LGBT stuff but really with sort of the left in general, this new wokeness phenomenon is is just crazy. <laughs> when did you first uh, recognize it or your spidey sense start going off about it? Oh, I'm embarrassed to say it took me a while. <laughs> I was very much like the slowly boiling frog who was going along with a lot of this stuff as it got more and more out of control. Um, and very much defending things that I look back and realize that I was I was I had probably I should have gotten off that train. <laughs> sooner, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say four or five years ago is when I started uh, realizing that I'm not like other people on the left, and I'm not quite following stuff the way they are. <laughs> and that was a scary thing for me, right? Like, suddenly finding commonalities with people uh, on the, the right occasionally is like jarring, if you're someone like me who's been, <laughs> you know, very much uh, implanted on the left. Um, so it took me a while to sort of reacclimatize and yeah, just sort of adjust. Were you concerned about losing social standing or your friends? Oh, very much so, and I still am. Yeah, uh, very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like it's it's so hard to talk about this stuff. Um, you just never know. It feels like uh, <laughs> it's like the beginning of it's like East Germany. You know, you have to be very cautious if you bring up some of these subjects around your friends because you just don't know how they're going to react. They could react extremely angrily and, you know, report you to the Stasi. Or they could sort of be like, oh, thank God, I feel the same way. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, what do you think is behind... What, what's behind that anger, that defensiveness, that overreaction? I mean, maybe it's not an overreaction. Maybe, like, there's a legitimate reaction going on there. No, that's a really good question. Um... Well, I think it's the same thing with, uh, that's a question that ties more to the connect, the links between wokeness and cult. Uh, it's part of a cult mindset. Um, uh, I think people really have built up these mental barriers. It's so scary for them to, to 
to challenge that. Hmm. So you know do I mean? you think that, that that was protective at some point or it came about because of the disparity that uh, gay activism uh, needed to confront and they needed to be uh, kind of solid and solidarity and we're all in this together to get these things and we have an, a very clear enemy which would be I guess the conservative right that wants to you know eradicate our existence and that just kind of carried over into the next thing once those rights were won. It's hard to say. I mean, gay, if we're talking not just broadly about overly woke people, but about the LGBT and trans issue specifically, I think the problem there is that the whole gay um, landscape has transformed completely in the last 15 years. Um, hmm. Completely. Like, uh, gays used to be concentrated in ghettos and in inner cities, and gays used to congregate together in physical spaces, and they read gay media and gay press and that meant that there was a lot of mixing between you know gay men and gay women and to a lesser degree trans people and people with various fetishes and kinks and that kind of thing we were all mixed together and we were all in this together as outsiders ghettoized together and as uh gay men and gay women have been more more and more assimilated into mainstream society and culture they've moved away from the physical gay communities so gay gay neighborhoods and gay villages are collapsing everywhere. They're shrinking. Um, and they've moved away from gay activism a lot of times. They've, they figure they've got what they need. So they're not, you know, they can marry, um, that kind of thing. Uh, so there's just, it's just a kind of a splintering and a disintegrating of the gay community. It's more just not so much a community anymore. Hmm. Um, I don't think, yeah. I think that what's left then in the, in people who really rely on the LGBT community are people who aren't gender conforming gays and lesbians or who just gone on with their lives and gotten married. These are people who still need the services, people who are still outside of the mainstream, if that makes any sense, um, who need the services and support of a gay uh, community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So there, there's a histrionic uh, thread within queer theory and pink news and, and some of these, uh, you know, bloggy like entities where they, they kind of conflate things constantly. They're always problematizing things, but it seems like you're pointing to a, a legitimate concern of the collapse of, of gay culture. Like, like I've read, I'm, I'm thinking in my mind about this, uh, slightly ridiculous article that was published, I think in the LA review of books, I think about, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, gag, um, and how he was betraying uh, gay culture because he was just a straight, privileged, you know, he's a straight gay, right? Or the, yeah. the way that people go after, I guess, Peter Thiel, you know, he's, he's gay, but because he's a conservative, he's a betrayal of, you know, this, uh, this society. But there's actually a legitimate uh, concern about the collapse of uh, certain aspects of gay culture, because it's no longer mixing uh, with itself. The, I guess the, the, um, Certain spectrums of the gay community don't need to be a part of it anymore because they, you know, it doesn't appeal to them. And like you're saying, they don't really need uh, to separate themselves from straight culture so much. Yeah. And I think it's jobs, too. Like, activism needs something to... Activists got to activist. And, yeah. uh, you know, they're kind of running out of uh, big, splashy issues. Uh, so trans is really the thing that they're running to. Mm-hmm. Which is because there is still more gay rights activism to be done. Uh, I think it was Masha Gessen, journalist in The New Yorker, 
Um, and although now she identifies as a non-binary person, because everyone does now. Um, uh, she was reporting that some, like the number of U.S. states that still you can be fired from your job for being same-sex attracted or kicked out of your housing, that's crazy. So there's still a lot more work for these advocacy groups to be doing on behalf of gays and lesbians. But it's just not, there's no sizzle, I guess. It's not splashy enough. <laughs> like, run to trans, and they've just completely abandoned gays and lesbians. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, like the LGB alliance in the UK is established because there's a, to fill that gap, right? And and the big splash around them is how they're not catering enough to uh, another uh, letter in the alphabet, right? Or they're betraying that other letter in the alphabet. How dare LGB not glue itself to T. How dare they? <laughs> you said the word uh, or the phrase same-sex attracted. Is that uh, is that parlance to kind of dis- distance between because gay and lesbian is now uh, same gender attracted? Is that or is that well, just always been? Maybe I'm kind of ripping people a little bit by reminding them it's sex thing and not a gender thing. <laughs> 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 Maybe, but I mean, it's just a term I think it's more... I think some people might be uncomfortable referring to lesbians as gay women. I don't know. It's always been a minefield with language around this thing. Mm. Um, hmm. Yeah. So we're... But, you know, <laughs> I don't care if you want to call it same-sex attracted or gay or even queer. I'm not even bothered by that word, but... Yeah. Have you, what's your, are you able to speak a little bit about your personal story? Like how, how you, uh, entered, uh, grew up, discovered sexuality and, uh, I guess, uh, dealt with society that would probably in your age range, probably still be quite openly anti, uh, gay. Yeah. It's, it was a weird time cause it was right. It, things changed so quickly. And, uh, it's like right around the time that I was in my, you know, in puberty and developing into a man that. It was like right in the middle of it, where half of the people were deeply homophobic still, and half of the people were totally jumping ahead and jumping on board, watching Ellen. <laughs> you know? um, I had a really shitty childhood. It was pretty bad. Uh, it was poor, and there was a lot of violence in my neighborhood, and uh, you know there was sexual abuse, and there was it was just a mess. Really, I was a runaway at a young age, and I was a homeless street kid for a little while. I've seen some things. <laughs> but uh yeah uh it was hard as a young person being gay for sure but by the time i was say 20 not only was it fine it just was completely it was not something i even thought about anymore i was living in the downtown core of a big liberal city and it just wasn't something that i was concerned about that didn't it didn't consume me i was perfectly comfortable with my sexuality by the time i was 20 but up until then, it was a real struggle, for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's been glamorized in a way? or and, and you were in that sweet spot where it was neither bad nor, uh, uh, you know, like a, some sort of social status to have... A... It, you know, I've heard that before, people saying that it was glamorized. Maybe now, but in my years, no. I felt, uh, if anything, I felt... Um, uh, restricted in what I could do as a gay person, even among people who accepted gay. So I would be out of the closet, and all of these women would want to be my friends, but they treated me like a fashion accessory, you know, or like a pet, you know. And I was very, I wanted to get into science, I wanted to be a scientist, uh, but I literally thought that you're not allowed to do anything 
except get like a gay career if you're a gay person. I had never seen anyone in the media. I'd never seen anyone depicted who was just, you know, a hardworking scientist or a computer engineer or something who was gay. So I thought I had to adopt like a, a fun fashion sidekick personality, you know, oh, wow. <laughs> to get into fashion for a while. So I didn't really feel like it was glamorous it, in the way that it was glamorous, at least. It felt really constricting to me, if that makes any sense. I was just completely, everybody told me that I could be nothing but like a, you know, a gay sidekick, essentially. <laughs> and I wanted to be a very serious thinking science person. And you just weren't allowed to do that as a gay person. What helped you to change your mindset on that? I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, I don't know. I think I just, I I got into a relationship with an intelligent person. um, And I got rid of some of my more toxic, you know, gay accessory kind of friends. Uh, And I just settled into a sort of a quiet domestic life where I realized all I want to do is, you know, read, surf the net, learn, go to school, that kind of thing. I ended up becoming a computer programmer in the end. (laughs) So, yeah. And then, so, do do you feel... It it seems like one of the uh, one of the activists uh, or one quality of uh, trans rights activism is that it it like you're saying it's kind of like a runaway train in a way like that is really um, your your uh, your video on comparing trans rights activism or gender ideology to Scientology is really fascinating because you just pair up. You know, para, para, para. It's not necessarily an argument. It's just like, okay, like one of these things is just like the other kind of, you know, thing. Um, do do you find that um, that is dangerous to the LGBT community at large, or do you think it's going to burn itself out? I think it's so dangerous um, because it's so offensive to outsiders. Um, it's demanding too much of people who aren't gay or lesbian, who aren't LGBT. And I think it was Ariel Scarcel who was pointing out how, like, gay rights approval ratings in polls seem to be going down. Um, who knows how much truth there is to that? Polls can be, you know, misleading in their questioning, phrasing, and things like that. But I, I could see it being a plausible thing that's happening. I think people uh, who are just not very politically engaged, who have for a long time just come to be comfortable with gays and lesbians and even trans people to some degree are now just sort of seeing this whole thing as very toxic and very imposing. And uh, yeah, so I think it's it's going to be really bad. Uh, and of course, it's bad for gays and lesbians because we're being constantly told <laughs> that there's something wrong with us by trans people because, oh. you know, we're same-sex attracted. Uh, yeah, there was a journalist... Uh, who I used to love. I used to read Gawker all the time. Do you remember Gawker? That website? I was totally addicted to Gawker before I figured out, before I discovered Twitter. Um, and before Peter Thiel ruined Gawker. Thanks, Peter. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think they did it to themselves, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> well, I, I mean, they were pretty, they were, yeah, they were pretty irresponsible in some ways, but it was fun. Very New York-y, very media insidery stuff. There's a journalist named Rich Jezwiak I'm probably not pronouncing that right. This gay guy who was really fun to read. And now he's at Slate, apparently. And it's so fascinating watching gay people try to to reconcile 
the fact that they're not gay men, that they're not sexually attracted to women at all, with the fact that that's offensive to trans men who are female. So Rich Jezwiak was doing this interview with this uh, trans man, a female to male trans person. Uh, and basically Rich was saying that every single gay man has an obligation to at least try to have sex with women and to be sexually attracted to, well, sorry, female people. Uh, <laughs> and if they don't, they're essentially a bigot and they're committing harm to trans people. And I was like, what? What Rich was trying to say is like, okay, I'm not into women and I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I can't help it. I, at least I tried, you know? And if you don't at least make an effort to train yourself to be essentially bisexual, you're committing a crime against the gay community. This is like a journalist who I had a lot of respect for um, it was writing at Slate. That's not some, you know, that's a mainstream magazine telling gay people that they have an obligation to essentially try to conversion therapy themselves for the sake of the feelings of, you know, a, a trans man. That's just crazy to me. That's totally crazy. Uh, and just yesterday, I was watching a video. Um, I think it was an LGB Alliance video. And the person in it was pointing out how they're being exposed to young people now. Uh, it was probably via your channel. <laughs> There's a therapist who was saying her young clients, her young patients, are starting to think that it's bad to be same-sex attracted. And when they discover in their in puberty that they're same-sex attracted, they think there's something wrong with themselves. So, yeah, I think it's really bad for gays and lesbians on that front, for sure. What's startling to me is that sexuality has become some sort of sexuality itself is tokenized now. Sexuality is a is a political act somehow, which is just it violates yeah. like some very deep opinions of me about what what it is to be a self and to be in love and and to be attracted and to experience pleasure with another body. Like, yeah. Well, are you feeling any of that sort of pressure on your sexuality that like? Like, are, are you seeing people telling you that there's something wrong with your sexuality? Well, I mean, as a straight white man, I've been told I was wrong my whole life, you know. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but the straight, are you, are you feeling pressure to like that you're, you, you, you feel guilty because you're straight or something like that? I I don't I don't respond to guilt tripping. I don't do. I grew up very I grew up very Christian. I, I'm pretty much inoculated to lower forms of guilt tripping. Like there's a there's a very deep persistent guilt that I have on an existential level that inoculates me to people trying to use guilt to manipulate me. So I I just it's the same thing with like privilege or white privilege or any any of these uh, different guilt tripping maneuvers. Like they just they really don't work for me for whatever reason so it's like you know. original sin was your vaccine i guess yeah yeah i'm, I'm staying to the core i mean you know like, <laughs> you've been vaccinated <laughs> yeah I'm vaccinated um in a way but uh I, I was just thinking there was this it might have been a hoax there was this flyer that was passed around or a sticker that was put on some you know official document where um in the uk where it said that genital preference is transphobic right and, yeah, I saw that. And the the entire my you know like there's a number of different reactions, but just like on the basic level of reducing people's genitals to some sort of political armada, like like only in a culture where genital touching is the same as 
touching hands or a handshake. Does that even make sense that you could just say that you should sleep, you should try to sleep with a certain percentage of this, uh, of this sexuality or this gender, right? And, you know, I even had a, a joke a while ago that I had never figured out how to, like, put down there without it being too bombastic. But, you know, like, like some college is uh, promoting, uh, you know, racial equity by, uh, by signing, everybody signs a pledge that they'll masturbate to a certain percentage of every racial group, right? <laughs> like it's just—it's so ridiculous that that people are trying to strong arm other people, and like under in what culture is it okay to do that? And how did it become a part of that culture to do that? And why is it suddenly okay? Why? Why? To what aim is it good to be same gender attracted but not same sex attracted? Like a lot of these trans women. They don't say that they're, you know, bisexual or what do you call it now, pansexual. Um, they say that they are attracted to one gender and one gender alone. But they're trying, so they're trying to like, they're trying to maintain their own same-sex attraction. You know, these are heterosexual males who are attracted exclusively to women, um, but they just don't want those rules to apply to everyone else. <laughs> but it doesn't make sense to be same-gender attracted because gender is nothing but a declared statement of pronouns. It's not something you can see. It's not something that's in any way physical. So the very idea that you're not attracted to one gender pronoun set and are attracted to another, that you are exclusive on the basis of pronouns, doesn't make any sense. How is that better to be exclusive toward pronouns than it is to be exclusive towards sex? Especially if these people are obsessed with the pronouns, how they're, you know, they're so important, then why are you excluding people based on their pronouns, right? If you say that you're same gender attracted and only same gender attracted, you're basically saying anybody who declares a certain gender identity pronoun statement is outside of my sexual uh, market. Mm-hmm. How is that not? How would they find that perfectly acceptable and not discriminatory and exclusionary when they wouldn't do the same thing for another set of criteria, which just happens to be genitals or body? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like it, yeah. I, I just do. Are you attracted to an identity, or do you do you have sex with an identity or a body, or are you attracted to an individual? Are you attracted yeah. to, to a human being? I mean, it it just seems like it, it's all operating well. The stuff that I'm critiquing is operating on such a shallow level of engagement between one person and another, where it's. It, you don't, but you're playing this game where oh, I'm not re- going to reduce people into their their bodies because that that's reductive. But I'll reduce people into their identities, which is like not tied to anything at this point. So, like, what are you doing? <laughs> you're still reducing people. You still yeah. have to have some criteria, and you have to sort of group people into likes and dislikes in some way or another. We've been doing that since since the dawn of time. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just like the, the, the aim of this doesn't make any sense. But I think a lot of it is that people just, they're so afraid to have an uncomfortable conversation with a trans person. I think the honest truth is a lot of these people, you know, they know trans people and they know it would hurt trans people's feelings to have to be one-on-one with a trans person who's their friend and say, listen, you know, I respect your identity, but I can still see what your biological sex is. And that would impact my decision on whether I wanted to be in a relationship with you or not people are just so afraid of that personal one-on-one mm. um uh i think uh you know personally offending someone who's trans that they know and it seems like a lot of trans people really are it, there's a lot of sort of guilt tripping 
it seems, not to sound too mean, but you sort of see that, that these people are declaring that they're very sensitive around this. Um, hmm. Nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings. <laughs> this is a super sensitive culture then. Yeah. Yeah. Which can be like totally hijacked by whoever can, you know, put on the, the saddest Eeyore face, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But and I don't people are realizing that they're doing it, that they've been sort of conditioned to, you know, to the, the way to achieve your objectives is to put on a sad Eeyore face and to lean heavily on essentially guilt tripping people. Sort of like how some people like cry to get what they want, but they don't realize they're actually being manipulated and doing so. <laughs> they think they're genuinely sad, but really it's just their brains have been trained that like this is how you get to your objective. <laughs> you know? And how do you call out this stuff without being a meanie? How do you call it out? Yeah. You just, look, you just have to rip off that band-aid. I think there has to be like a large communal listen, <laughs> friend. <laughs> I respect you as a trans person, but there are boundaries, you know, there are limits to your social role as a trans person and they don't go as far as you might want them to. Um, you have to accept that there has to be honest, like stark, harsh conversations with people. I wish there was like this whole movement to do that. <laughs> do you, That's do you feel that coming? Hmm? Sorry. That's a viral video. I would reshare like people. <laughs> facing trans people in person and saying, listen, or trans activists. Um, yeah. Do you, do you see that? Uh, I mean, you're saying that it's necessary to see it coming. I mean, you're stepping out. Ariel has done it. Um, there's certain other people who are saying no to yeah. the queering of the world. The queering of the planet. Yeah. Um, I, it's a matter of when. It's a matter of what is going to be the tipping point. What, there's a term, there's some term that I learned recently, there's something called like false consensus. Have you heard of this? Uh, it sounds familiar. Could you explain? It's it? a phenomenon of where everybody, nobody agrees with something, but that something is the sort of mainstream zeitgeist position. So everybody goes along with it until suddenly all at once, everybody realizes that everybody else didn't agree with it either. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here. Are you there? Connected. Uh, yeah, false consensus. So, like, everybody thinks that everybody else agrees with a certain position, so they all go along with it. Until suddenly, everybody suddenly realizes that nobody agreed with it. Um, mm. And it just collapses. it. This is sort of what happened in East Germany. Yeah. Everybody, the Stasi, everybody thought the socialist uh, uh, movement was, was, everybody liked it. And then everybody suddenly realized that nobody liked it, and it just fell apart overnight. Or what, what, the McCarthy era hearings. Remember, there was that you finally fell apart in one explosion when that guy just looked McCarthy in the face and said, "Have you no shame?" <laughs> and that's the, that was the trigger when everybody realized McCarthy was crazy and it had been a witch hunt that went off the rails. Um, so what's going to be that? What's going to be the thing that makes everybody realize that nobody believes in gender identity ideology? Nobody believes any of this stuff <laughs> about magic gender souls. Um, <laughs> it seems, yeah, there, there's a go on slate and say that we all have an obligation to try to have sex with, you know, but I don't think he definitely believes it. I think it's just this false consensus. Um, I was kind of thinking the Tokyo Olympics would be the trigger. Mm -hmm. 
you know, when we're going to see a massive uptick in obviously male-bodied people competing um, in women's sports, I think that would just be such a visceral image of unfairness uh, that that might have been a big, a big one. But obviously, the uh, the common crisis with the rapid onset uh, kids uh, who have been misled into doing terrible things. Uh, I think that's just heartbreaking and horrifying. And that's going to wake up a lot of gay men who so far haven't really been stepping up. Okay. When they're going to see that a lot of these young homosexual males who are effeminate have been convinced by doctors that they're actually transsexual women. Um, and there's no going back. Uh, yeah. It's going to be huge. Yeah, that Empress has no VJJ incident. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so serious, the stuff around these uh, trans kids because they're all just gay kids. These are gay kids, right? These are proto-gay children. If you're an extremely effeminate male who is so effeminate that you've, you've been distressed about it since your childhood, hello, this was me, um, or you're an extremely masculine female who just innately seems to be that way uh, and it confusing to you as a young person, that means you're gay. It does not mean that you're a transsexual. And in fact, the transsexual kids are usually totally gender conforming <laughs> and they're on the football team. They're not, you know, hmm. uh, they're the ones who develop autogynophilia in their late teens. Uh, mm -hmm. They're off on the football team in the IT club. They're not um, distressed and experiencing this stuff. So it's, it's this whole, the phenomenon of trans kids is just a complete um, takeover of, of, of proto-gay children, it feels mm -hmm. like. Now, a lot of these gay children would also end up transsexual. You know, they'd be homosexual transsexuals in the Blanchard um, typology. Uh, but a lot of them wouldn't. You know, there's a great study uh, I was I looked at with the specific numbers. I loved it because it had actual numbers. There were some, a few hundred children who were experiencing gender dysphoria from a young age. And half of them um, were, uh, what would you call it, were... Um, affirmed as opposite sex from an early age and then the other half were not and then we look at those numbers and what happens to them by the time they reach their teens virtually all of the young male dysphoric children by the time they've already reached the age of 13 or 14 if they were not affirmed if they were just still told that what their sex is they all got over it they all just realized they're gay and almost all of them got over their dysphoria by 14 you know and almost all of the ones who were affirmed from a young age that they were the opposite sex and allowed to change their name and blah, 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 uh, almost all of them didn't get over it. Uh, mm. So it's hard, cold numbers. You can change someone's uh, mm. gender identity from a childhood age um, very, very easily. It's not the same thing as changing someone's sexual orientation. I think in, in one respect, I think there's an entire economy that needs to collapse before it becomes unfashionable, right? Like like with the East German analogy, I think that a lot of it, uh, what was informing us that we can't eat anymore. We Like there, our substance is gone. And so I think that there needs to be uh, there, like the economy of attention grabbing, like it will no longer translate into cool numbers. You can no longer you know, launch yourself into infamy by claiming these certain, you know, arguments and stuff that that needs to go. But I wonder if the um, uh, it's just it's odd because like the left 
uh, classically was about, you know, like organic food and like real life, you know, like homeopathic treatments and like not going down the Western, uh, you know, like anti-vax even in, in a certain way. Um, but it, it's it, like there was like this organic movement that's kind of like understood to be on the left, but this embracing of medicalization um, of the body for for the entire life, like that in and of itself needs to be really yeah, that's deeply. Not very question. granola medicalize your children. So how is it that these super granola kind of communities? Yeah. We're diving along into it. But maybe part of that, part of the economy of that of trans kids is parents who desperately want to protect their kids. I think a lot of these parents really think they're helping their kids by transing mm-hmm. them. Um, and when we see, what's, when we, you know, when the inevitable backlash comes uh, with the rapid onset population, um, that economy will collapse. People will see that these children were not helped. They were harmed. They're in medical peril. In, they're having medical problems. Um, so, I mean, if, if a lot of the trans kids phenomenon is parents, sort of desperate helicopter parents who want to protect their kids at all costs, we all know that's a phenomenon with parents right now, right? <laughs> Overprotecting it. Uh, that, could, that will disappear very quickly when people suddenly realize that this hasn't been helping the kids at all. So if we're looking at it in terms of an economic collapse, at least that's one possibility. As for the overall left idea of everything... Uh, trans is great uh, <laughs> that's a different story i don't know how yeah. do you how do you properly reach out to the to teens then in in this situation what do you think that that's the responsibility of the lgbt community to do that and... i think uh, absolutely um especially my heart really breaks for these young lesbians who are just barrage from all sides about this. They're being told that they aren't really lesbians and that they're trans men. And then they're being told that male-bodied people who identify as trans are, in fact, lesbians. So they're just, you know, they're really... And this is all really... All of this is because of the motives of these male-bodied people who self-identify as lesbians um, who are behind all of this. It breaks my heart, but I think, you know, you read a little bit about uh, the, what's going on. Like, if, you, if you've ever been to the Reddit trans channel a lot of these young girls um are saying that they just didn't have enough lesbian role models that they could look up to um so yeah i think the lgbt community has a huge responsibility um to reach out to these girls uh and just show them that you know lesbians come in all shapes and sizes and they're very happy <laughs> and what it was like to grow up as a lesbian like dan savage's it gets better thing was reaching out to young gays to make them understand that the hardships of going through puberty and realizing you're gay, you get over them. Uh, something like that for these young lesbians. Like, you'll become more comfortable in your body. You'll get over your distress at society, you know, like at realizing that you are a person that a lot of people don't like. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of lesbophobia in society. It must be very scary. It's scary enough realizing you're a girl and then a gender non-conforming girl, and then now a same-sex attracted girl, a lot of girls will want to opt out of that because it's scary. So a lot of older lesbians should be reaching out to these girls and saying, look, no, you get, it gets better. <laughs> it yeah. might be, it might take an Ellen to, you know, actually draw the line at some point. I don't know if she has. I, I don't know anything about her, but I don't know if she's taken a stance on this or stood up for those young women. Well, I think we should give Banji a talk show, um, GNC-centric, 
Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> she's, she's extraordinary. She's so smart. Um, she's had to go through it all herself. She's so young and she's been through so much. And she had no, uh, she had to figure it all out on her own. And wow, she's just, yeah. Give her all the things. <laughs> yeah. And <Angie> from- <laughs> <laughs> What what do you do? You have any ideas of where you want to go with uh, like your your episodes and stuff? Do you have some mapped out? Do you, I guess you have a little bit of free time right now to think about that? I guess so. I mean, I guess I should try to do something about trans kids because that's and NROGD and trans youth because that's really I think important. Uh, it's important that people really understand that you know these are really just largely homosexual kids who are just being completely misled. Um, you know, I just did one about uh, how trans is not the new gay and the differences between trans activism and gay rights activism. But it's funny. I've been thinking about the similarities, too. So maybe I would do like the opposite. Like, for example, do you know anything about gay rights history and free Stonewall and any of that? I'm very unversed in it. I would love a crash course if you're up for it. Well, I'm forced, you know, Stonewall is 1969, big riot. That was the beginning of the gay liberation movement. But before Stonewall, Gays were trying desperately to conceal the fact, uh, or they were trying to put on this presentation of, um, put on this face of like normal members of society. We're not weird. It's not a sex thing. And they called themselves homophiles instead of homosexuals. The idea being that file is Latin for love, right? Yeah. So this isn't about sex. This is about love. We don't want anything. To, we don't want this to have anything to do with sex. Uh, so they renamed themselves homophiles gay it's about love it's not about sex and they wore business suits the men and the women wore like very conservative dresses and they would have these very polite quiet protests called the annual reminder you know they're all just trying to put on this face that like look we're not curves we're not spazzed we're not free was kind of the the image they were trying to portray it went nowhere (laughs) it was a small small movement that plodded on for years and years and years and never gained any traction and then Stonewall happened, there was a violent riot, and after that, uh, this was also in the spirit of the 1960s and the 70s, um, people were much more out and proud, and like, look, actually, it is about sex. Yeah, we totally sodomized each other, you know? <laughs> we absolutely, and they were honest and upfront and blunt about it, and that got huge, splashy headlines, and that got everybody's attention, and also, I think the honesty was refreshing. Um, that really is what when the gay rights movement took off is when people were much more stopped trying to pretend that gay wasn't about sex, stopped trying to pretend that gay wasn't about gender nonconforming. You know, gay men often are very effeminate, gay women are often are very butch. Uh, once they owned it and accepted it, that's when things took off. And isn't that like the whole transsexual versus transgender thing? You know, they the same thing. They took transsexual, they took the word sexual out. They don't want to admit that it's about sex. And they've replaced it with transgender. Just like the homophile movement was taking homosexual and turned it into something else. Uh, the homophile movement, that was a disaster because most people, they hear homophile, and it just sounds like a portmanteau of homo-pedophile. Right? Like, oh, yeah, Mark. okay. <laughs> so that didn't help at all because it just echoes of, um, yeah. But the transsexual, transgender thing is the same thing. Transsexualism is very much connected to sex drive, sexual orientation. Under, underneath the hood of a lot of the gender dysphoria and trans uh, compult desire to be a trans person, it's very connected to sex and sexuality. Um, Anne Lawrence, do you know Anne Lawrence? She's a 
trans woman, and she wrote that book, uh, Men Trapped in Men's Bodies. Um, you know, she, she calls it a sexual orientation, autogynophilia. Um, but the transgender movement is trying to cleanse any mention of sexuality in transgenderism, any mention that it's driven by sex drive. And I think it's the sooner that they admit that, you know, autogynophilia is a thing, and that even in homosexual transsexuals, the desire to transition is, is very much connected to sex drive. Uh, the sooner that everyone can really start embracing it, you can't lie about what you're, you know, what it is. You can't try to whitewash what transsexualism is. You have to be honest about it. Uh, so that's something that's similar between the gay rights movement in history, that it didn't really find true acceptance until it came to terms with the fact that it was about sex and nonconformity. And I'd like to see the same thing happen with the trans movement. Mm -hmm. They can start by reading transsexual. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it seems like a lot of people are uh, taking advantage of the cover of genderism um, because they can pretend this isn't about sex. Like you can pretend that this isn't about desire and you can get, you can achieve a lot if people don't know your, your intentions. And, um, but at the same time, like I constantly try to say this in all these interviews, like the, there are people who are taking advantage of this stuff, but not everybody who's in this group is a uh, predator. Not everybody who is transsexual is, is out to, you know, you know, convince young women to sleep with them, you know, under the auspices of being a woman. Some yeah, pretty way, but the, the but the community needs to be able to, to to police itself and call itself out and call out the extremities, call out the JYs, you know, um, you know, yeah. distinguish themselves from the the you know the predators or the pervs. And yeah, they really do, and that's another parallel with the the gay rights movement and gay liberation is that and sexual liberation in general, people snuck into that movement who were predators, you know. Uh, and the gay rights movement couldn't just stand there and say, you know, you're accusing all gay people of being predators. They had to say, okay, actually, we do have some in our midst. Mm. Pred pedophiles absolutely latched on to the gay rights movement. For a long time, there were a large number of pedophilia, pedophilia advocates who were using the cover of the gay rights movement to advance their agenda. And it's shocking just how far they got. <laughs> if you really want to look at the history, NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, in the United Kingdom, PI, the Pedophile Information Exchange, were like, you know, they were right at the front of those gay pride parades. Uh, hmm. It took a long time, but eventually gays had to realize, no, we can't, we have to take on the problems within our community and within our activist movement. And we have to face them and we have to expel them. And eventually they did. Eventually NAMBLA <laughs> and PI were pushed out of the gay rights movement, thankfully. And I'd like to see the same thing happen in the trans movement, where there are clearly, you know, self-ID is just a recipe for disaster. Um, because it's just obvious cover for people who aren't taking any steps to, you know, it's, it's cover for people who should not have anything to do, should not be involved in the trans community at all. Uh, they have to admit that. They have to admit that, you know, they don't like the idea of gatekeeping around sex change and transition, but gatekeeping isn't about just themselves. It's about women and children you know if you have when you you know when you're changing sex you're essentially applying for like citizenship biological citizenship in a new biological domain essentially yeah. right and you have to go through gatekeeping you have to apply there and there have to be things you have to to do to to be granted that privilege 
So the idea that it's just anybody can take it whenever they want and any gatekeeping is bad is just yeah. a recipe for disaster. And I think that's the first thing the trans movement has to acknowledge is that there really have to be some material distinction between a genuine trans woman and a man. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there have to be some steps that you have to take. If you, The more and more rights you want, the more and more you want to be entitled to women's rights if you're a male-bodied person, the more and more steps you're going to have to take to demonstrate that uh, that you're not a threat to women, I think. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that seem normal to you? Yeah. Uh, this, I, don't, I don't want to phrase this question poorly, but I might end up doing that. So I hope that you can extend some... I mean this in good faith. How does how did the gay community separate itself from the pedophile community? Uh, to to the to the large heterosexual, you know, um, outside world that would see it as a slippery slope. If you're going to allow people to have sex with the same sex, why would you stop people from having sex with uh, a variety of age groups? Like, what, what's the what's the key distinction that the gay community used? Well, the key distinction is that uh, gay rights was all about sexual liberation in general, and that any rules um, regarding sex, sex were bad. Uh, so anything, uh, yeah. any sex goes, any kind of policing around sex is bad. And they went with this for a while until finally uh, women's rights advocate uh, said, no, that's not true. There are some kinds of sex that should still be policed. Non-consensual sex, that's not fun, that's not good, <laughs> and sex with minors. So these are two exceptions to the whole all sex is good. It went from all sex is good to consensual sex among consenting adults is good. And that distinction had to be made. Okay. It has to be consensual, has to be adults, has to be humans. <laughs> is another one. Um, yeah. And, and, and then the acts they had to take were to, to expel members of these pedophile groups from gay rights groups. You had to literally kick them out. Uh, yeah. Uh, that reminds me, I, I believe it was William F. Buckley, when he uh, initiated a renovation of the conservative movement, he kicked out all the racists, or he very went, he went pretty hard line against the uh, white nationalist and the KKK in the movement and cleaned it up in order to make it respectable. Um, it just, it reminds me that, um, or it's just a good point that any movement needs to constantly be weeding itself out, or, or which is which is difficult, because if you're all accepting or if you're uh, if you're pushing for acceptance it's really it takes a lot of nuance and and courage to say you know what we can't be all accepting that doesn't actually work like we have to have lines we have to draw lines because we want to um actually fit into society we want to be accepted by society and so we have to distinguish ourselves from things that would be unacceptable not only to society as like a status quo but actually rather destructive to society and being able to do that actually is a sign of, of goodwill and good faith and people in your position within the, the gay community and Ariel and other people, the LGB Alliance, are actually doing a lot of good work for the trans community by, you know, by, by starting to establish distinctions between proper etiquette or proper and improper, um, you know, I guess, transformation and stuff like that. Well, I think so. I mean, I'm certainly I, I, I'm very concerned about the well-being of my trans friends and the people I know who are trans, the people who I've interacted with. Um, yeah, like, you know, look at someone like Debbie Hayton. Um, isn't she great? Like, she's being affected by this, and she's had to put herself out there and really work hard to, to, to get the message out that this is harming trans people. 
this isn't just about gays and lesbians and gay children. It's about trans people, too. And they're very much my allies. You know, I don't hate people at all. I care deeply about them. I care enough to actually look into what it is and to actually want to make sure that we're getting it right, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people who think that they're being good trans allies by just ignoring the issues and just put, wishing it all away are actually being irresponsible and cowardly. How did you, uh, did you, I guess, when you were growing up, did you uh, have a gender dysphoria internally or externally? And how did you, what were some of the things that allowed you to, you know, fit into your body, fit into your skin? Mm. That's a tough one. Uh, yeah, I If did. you don't mind, maybe you can save that for your channel. I just think it's tough to express. It's tough to explain. It's hard to, I mean, I did have some degree of, of gender distress. I grew up in a, in a household with a, a woman and a sister, a mother and sister, so it was just women. I was very effeminate from a very early age, very clearly going to be growing up gay. Um, uh, yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but we were also like a very rational, science-based household. My mother was a very critical-thinking, intelligent woman. So I think the idea that my body is wrong would never would never have flown. It would have been more like that I hate my body and I hate the fact that I'm a male um, uh, and that I didn't get along with males and, you know, not having a father figure or anything like that. I was probably frightened by adult men a lot and frightened by men. Um, hmm. I'm not sure how I got over it, but it would have been around the time of puberty, for sure, which is exactly what they say, isn't it? When you hear about Moria uh, in childhood, is you when you're going through puberty, your body is flowing with all sorts of sex hormones, testosterone, and suddenly, and sex drive kicks in massively, uh, and suddenly you, you you sort of lock in and you realize that your body is, is you. It just mm-hmm. changes. So yeah, I'm not sure exactly, and it's hard, um, because I think when you look back and try to remember these kinds of feelings of dysphoria, you're probably not remembering the way they really happen. Yeah. Um, so, but I remember I was certainly distressed about the fact that I was a guy um, and I remember it, it probably got over it around, yeah, in puberty. Yeah. One of my, uh, regular guests, Sasha Ayad, um, Love her. Yeah. yeah, she's wonderful. Um, she, she really enjoys your, your videos. Like I sent them to her today and she, she gobbled them all up. Um, oh, wow. the one on, uh, trans and trans rights is not gay rights. Uh, she pointed out something that was pretty interesting about the difference between your experience and, and female's experience and how male sexuality, um, due to its intensity and its focus, might have uh, might might be easier to actually uh, help a guy snap out of gender dysphoria because you're constantly reminded by your body of what your body wants constantly, right? Whereas a female sexuality tends to be a lot more fluid and the relationships that women enter into can... can uh, aren't necessarily as locked in it's it's even on a physical level the the male sexuality is very concentrated in certain areas and the female sexuality is very diffused throughout the entire body so yes a sexual i think it was james Cantor who's been a guest on your show uh i think he's a sexologist i think it was from him that i was really starting to understand that like very fundamental biological differences between male sexuality and female sexuality it's just so fascinating how they're just they're completely different physiological things. And males, I think women also don't understand how much the male sex drive dominates our lives. Like we, how far we will go <laughs> to achieve sexual satisfaction, how it really is 
the absolute bedrock of a lot of our motivation. Well, or um, how far we have to go to get away from it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's so fascinating. Um, did she say that in a video? No, we. Uh, it was just a private conversation. We, she was just talking about that. Um, just to, to bring up uh, that that there's there's a variety of different issues in play, and that there is a by which I mean to bring up that there's a there's a large market and and what sorts of information needs to be out there for young people um, who are effeminate or masculine and and uh, male and female um, that that will resonate with them on a different level, and I wonder if um, I. I don't know i don't know enough about the community but i wonder if your voice if you if you spoke to young people about your you know your development if that wouldn't uh you know help a specific contingent of that of of the youth and stuff like that and to their parents frankly um because if you're very very young it's your parents that need to guide you through your distress and your your confusion around gender and sex it's your your guardians who need to be guiding you through that so I need to be assuring parents too, um, kids themselves for sure. But yeah, true parents definitely. I guess you already did the big. The biggest thing to do is to defy the stigma of of disagreement with uh, dominant orthodoxy. So you're well on your way. <laughs> uh, it's fascinating, though. I um, I've always been fascinated by groupthink, and I just I still can't believe how bad it is in the progressive community it's just mind-blowing well what do you do then somebody who wanted to be progressive or where, where do you where do you land now where, where do you think of yourself now uh a deep programmer <laughs> oh. i put everything in like uh in, 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 as if this is a cult and you have to you can't just you have to deprogram people you have to take it slow and steady and you have to use the tools of deprogramming someone and getting someone out of a cult um so you start with one small issue um, that you know someone is going to realize that they haven't been looking at it right. And then you just let them stew on that for a bit, and that's your way to make them realize that they're not exactly in line with their group. And then from there, you start just asking them questions. Um, I, I'll, I'll bet Sasha would be a wonderful <laughs> deprogrammer for this kind of thing. She, her whole Jungian uh, perspective on things is, is really refreshing. That's me. And how did you get involved in not culting? Were you attracted to a cult and snapped out of it, or are you just fascinated by it? I've always been an atheist, and I've always been angry at religion. <laughs> I also, my extended family is very religious, um, and they don't speak to us basically at all. So there's been this very resentment of, like, you know, <laughs> I don't have any communication with most of my extended family because they're various brands of extremist uh, religions, you know? You got Southern Baptists in Texas. You've got something called Christadelphian. I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's a little sect. They're like Mennonites, but urban. They're like inner city Mennonites. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of strange religious sects going on in my um, extended family. So I've always had this like really hostile attitude towards religion, and that's just turned into a hostile attitude towards, or a fascination with. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Have you have you done that professionally at all? Like like interacted uh, with the programming kind of stuff, or just uh, self research kind of stuff? Yeah. No, no, it's all self research. Yeah, this is all just a hobby. <laughs> yeah, a the, hobby. the the um, I really want to explore at some point, and I'm I'm working my way there. Eventually, I want to explore 
human spirituality um, mm-hmm. as distinct from religion, religion, but I need to go and lay the groundwork of like an understanding of religion, its pluses, its minuses, its strengths and its weaknesses before I can embark on the a-religious experience of, of spirituality. And then how do you start communicating about that and stuff? So one, one of the steps is to do is to go through the cult uh, mindset and the, uh, the programming and the deprogramming that happens there and to move on to the religious mindset um, and how it can give access to uh, or in support certain states of consciousness that aren't readily accessed in the mundane everyday person to person sphere. Um, so, it all exists on a spectrum, though, because people are seeking that, then they get bogged down in these other weird kind of, you know, eddies. Yeah. <laughs> it is fascinating. I've never really been someone who's uh, interested in the spiritual. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating to me, for sure. Especially religions like, like Eastern religions, which are kind of atheistic, but also very spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Buddhism has a lot of fascinating aspects to it, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how long are you uh, self-lockdowned? Uh, Do you know yet? What's your Hard state on... Uh, well, uh, I'm in Canada, and uh, it's probably going to be a few more weeks minimum. Um, both my jobs, I've been laid off from everything, so... Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, things will get back on their feet in the summer, hopefully. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, it's, nobody really knows how long this is going to be, but I'm hoping just a few more weeks before we can loosen up and get back to normal a little bit and still keep things under control. Do you have any We're, tips for people that are stuck inside and, and like to be outside with other people? Coping mechanisms? No. <laughs> this is brand new to me. I don't know. If you have any tips for me, please give them to me. Because I, <laughs> I've never spent much time indoors. I swear to God, I go out like all the time. So, oh man, uh, yeah, I don't. I'm just trying to provide people for, with distraction, you know, um, or something else to think about, you know. But still, want to recognize the severity of the potential of what we're dealing with, you know, and um, encourage people to stay inside and encourage us to try to figure out how to slow things down yeah and stay optimistic you know watch your diet i think that's what you were saying on your channel yeah (laughs) media as well as uh, i guess uh potato diet you know yeah oh my god totally yeah well thanks so much for coming on Artie. i think you're you're refreshing you got a lot of you got a lot working for you on your channel and, and thanks for coming on thanks for giving me the opportunity to like clue people in on your existence <laughs> thank you this, is, this has been so much fun oh my god i love it uh yeah if you get any more ideas for videos i should make send them my way yeah I, I, you don't seem like somebody who's who has a dearth of ideas but I, i'll do no, that probably not pretty pretty rapidly yeah <laughs> i like that how's the response been i think you've been i've seen a lot of positive so much positive i'm shocked i was really bracing for like massive negative response and lots of trolling and lots of anger but i think i've got my last video has over 200 likes and like one or two dislikes and i'm just like what and the comments are just so positive i can't believe it it's amazing i'm really really surprised it's a little depressing too because i realize it's because i'm a man and if a woman were saying these things i suspect facing a lot more vitriol 
Mm-hmm. At least that's my suspicion. Um, but, I mean, it's nice that these videos, which are touching on a very controversial subject, uh, are, are being received uh, openly, with open minds and open hearts, and with a lot of positive response. I think happy. there's a lot of people who are uh, every every week more and more people are being turned on to uh, just how fast that train's going and uh, the the lack of brakes that it seems to have. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Someday we can all come out of the closet and break that. What do you call it? A false consensus mm. <laughs> and realize all agreed all along that this was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna happen. Hmm. Well, cool. What, what are you up to for the rest of the day? I'm ending the recording now. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.